What good is the church? Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think this is a very important question. I'm lucky enough to be part of a church that believes that the church is meant to be a blessing to her neighbors and to the world. We really want to be that kind of church. We're just followers of Jesus who are surprised by his grace and his love for us. So it's our desire to be instruments of that grace and love as we go about our everyday lives. This is our first season of our podcast. It's designed for our church, but we hope it'll be a blessing to others as well. This series of messages lays out the foundations of our sense of where God is leading us as we enter into a new season of ministry. My name's Chad Herb. I'm the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Kingwood. Welcome to the first season of our podcast. It's titled Gathered and Sent. All right, uh, Matthew 28. I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, be present with us, not only as your words read, but as we uh, dig deeper into the gospel and into another story that we think we know. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. That is the mission statement. That is, that's what it's all about. If we want to craft a mission statement for our church, it's easy. The job's done. It's right there. We are supposed to be all about disciples making disciples. But sometimes the church forgets. Uh, We get busy doing our own little jobs. Uh, Sometimes we need to be reminded. We need to set aside our little projects and be reminded to return to the mission of God. And that's what Matthew 28 reminds us of. Uh, Last week, Sabrina did this. She did a really great job talking about discipleship. And she shared with us the really good news, the sweet news that Jesus has invited us to come and follow him. And the way she explained it was really helpful. It, it is an invitation. It is not something that we're coerced into. We are not obligated to follow him. We are not obligated to live the best life, to follow Jesus on the adventure of a lifetime. We can choose to say no. We've just been invited to come. Now, some people have asked, and people wrestle with God in this way, why would God even let us say no? Like, why would he allow us to choose to turn away from him, to turn away from his love? Why would he let us choose to be separated from him? That's actually one of the easiest questions to answer. uh, Because true love can't be coerced. True love can't be demanded. It can only be offered and then accepted. Because otherwise, it's not true love. And scripture is very clear that our God is love. So we've heard that invitation. Now today there's a little bit of a turn. Because for those who have come, for those who have accepted the invitation of Jesus, now there's a command. There's a directive. There's a mission. We're not invited. We're commanded to go. And as you go, make disciples baptize and teach them to obey. There's an author named Alan Hirsch. He says this, there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. 
Every follower of Christ is a sent one. So this raises two simple questions. Uh, Where? Where are we sent? Everywhere. And then to who are we sent? To everyone. Now we've been working through this kind of vision and values for this new season of ministry at First Pres. We've been doing that since the first of the year. Um, And we have seen over the past few weeks that we believe we are called to be a church that gathers. A group of people who have heard the call to come, the invitation, and we have chosen to accept it. So we gather together to equip each other, to encourage one another to continue on that journey. And at the same time, we are called to simultaneously be a church that's sent. We are called to go, to serve, to love, to offer that invitation of Jesus to those who don't yet know his love and his redemption. So this great commission, this command from Jesus to go, it's really simple. I usually like to take the Greek and break it down and tell you that it means something you didn't think it meant, but that's not the case this time. It just means what it means. We are to go make disciples. So I want to look at this familiar command, uh, this mission of Jesus, these red letters of Jesus, but I want to use a familiar story to help us understand it better, and I think we're going to find that this story is not actually very familiar to us at all. Uh, Most of you know the story of Jonah and the what? Whatever it is, whale, big fish, whatever. Uh, Do you know that you got that title, Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the big fish, from a million other sources other than scripture? Uh, Veggie Tales is a big one. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that that big fish, in four chapters of the book of Jonah, did you know that that big fish only takes up two verses? Did you know that big fish is actually the least important part of the story? So I want to read you a couple uh, sections from Jonah, uh, sections that you might not be as familiar with. Um, I really think this story about this Old Testament prophet, it tells us a lot about God. It tells us a lot about us in a really interesting way. Um, And I think it's going to help us see the Great Commission in a new light. So uh, this is Jonah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and that's a great place to stop. Uh, This seems like just a typical introduction to one of the Old Testament prophets. But there is actually a lot happening in these 10 English words. Those 10 English words tell us exactly what we're about to read, but it's not at all what you might expect. So let me show you. Uh, This is from Micah. This is the very next book in the Old Testament. It starts like this. The word of the Lord came to Micah, son of Moresheth. And then Zephaniah, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi. The books of prophecy in the Old Testament They begin this way, either the word of the Lord or a vision from the Lord comes to his prophet. All right, so the author of Jonah is trying to tell us that Jonah is a book of what? Go ahead and say it out loud. See, you know you're wrong. So you're hesitant to say it. Yeah, it's not. It's actually not a book of prophecy at all. Now, the rest of the prophetic books in scripture, they're filled, after we get their introduction, they're filled with the words of the prophet, these words that were given to them from God that are given out to the people. Verse after verse, chapter after chapter. Guess how many words of prophecy we find in the book of Jonah? In four chapters of Jonah, guess how many we find? Five. The brilliant Hebrew scholar in the front row knows that there are five words that Jonah preaches to the town of Nineveh. And it actually doesn't even happen until chapter three. 
So we have to ask, what kind of literature is this? I've told you before, I read the Bible literally. That means that I read it according to the type of literature that it tells us it is. And we find narrative in scripture, so we read it narratively. We find poetry in scripture, we read it poetically. There's parables, there's all kinds of literature in scripture. In the New Testament, we even get to read other people's mail. So like there's a lot of different things that we're reading and there are different ways to read it. So what kind of literature is Jonah? So I want you to know what I'm about to say is, is gonna maybe, I don't know, it might upset some of you possibly, uh, but I'm not making it up. Um, so I'm relying on the work of a ton of Hebrew and Old Testament scholars, uh, some of my professors from seminary. This is how they and many others describe Jonah. It's satire. And the best modern cultural example that we have is Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Jonah is Saturday Night Live. And what, so think about it. So what does Saturday Night Live do? What does satire do? So it takes people and situations that we know, that we're familiar with, but then it puts them in extreme and over-the-top scenarios, right? Everything tends to begin like we expect, but then everything takes a shocking and radical turn. Now what's amazing about satire, what I love about satire is its purpose as a form of literature. You see, its purpose is not just to make fun of people that we know. It's actually aimed at criticizing and mocking our culture. Not the person, but our culture. And guess who makes up our culture? Us. You see, satire takes someone else, someone familiar, makes it safe, and then through them says something to us about us. It criticizes and critiques us. And the amazing thing, what I think is the gracious thing of God about satire, is that as we read it or as we watch it, we don't even get offended. What do we do instead? We laugh. And we laugh at ourselves. You see, when satire is at its best, we not only laugh, but we come to realize deeper truths about ourselves. And we can even come to accept uncomfortable truths about ourselves. Now, Saturday Night Live isn't necessarily the best example of this, but that is the purpose and the effect of good satire. Jonah's not the only example in scripture, but Jonah is one of the best examples of satire that we'll ever read. So let me show you, I don't have time to go through everything. It happens just all throughout the book, but let me show you just a couple things. First, Jonah, the son of Amitai. Now, here's what you need to know. In Hebrew, the word Jonah means dove. The dove is a symbol of peace, right? It's the messenger of God in many Old Testament stories. His father, Amitai, that name means son of faithfulness. So let's use these Hebrew translations and read it again. It would read like this. The word of the Lord came to the dove, the messenger, the son of faithfulness. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And now, here's how the dove, the messenger, the son of faithfulness, responds. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. God says, okay, wake up, it's time to go to work. And what does Jonah do? Immediately and literally runs the opposite way. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, it shows this picture. Um, I don't, if you can't read it, it says Nineveh one way and not to Nineveh the other way. 
He went as far as he could in the opposite direction. He was going to the edge of the known world. We might say he's going to Timbuktu. He's going as far as he could to disobey the word of the Lord. He didn't even just stay in bed and say no. Like he got up and went the opposite direction. You see, Jonah had a plan for his life and that plan did not include being one of the only prophets of Israel whose job it was to redeem and restore their enemies. These horrible and wretched people in Nineveh. God called him to go and Jonah answered, wait, you want me to go where? You want me to go save who? No thanks. So chapter two is the chapter most of us know. It tells the story of how God redirected his steps. This fish literally vomits him up on the shore of Nineveh. And then the story continues in chapter three. It says this. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Okay, just, that means that it was about 60 miles in diameter. There's no ancient city that's even close to being that big, okay? This is extreme, it's exaggerated. It takes three days to go through it and it tells you that because of this. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and then proclaimed 40 days. Where is the center of a city, especially in the ancient world? In the center. (laughs) If he only went a day's journey, that means he didn't even go all the way in. And he says these five Hebrew words, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So it goes on, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. When Jonah finally does relent, when he does obey, when he goes and shares those five words, the author tells us that the entire city repents and turns to the Lord. Now here's the deal. This city was as evil as it gets. The Ninevites were not only the enemies of Israel, they were the enemies of everyone. They had no allies. Historians tell us that Ninevites were as ruthless and as brutal as any people in history. They would raid cities and skin the people alive just because. They wouldn't even take the city. They would just go destroy it just because they could. They were horrible. To the prophet of the Lord, this Israelite, shows up on the shore of this pagan, horrible, corrupt, perverted city, speaks five words. God's salvation is not only offered to them, but apparently it's received, like immediately. This story is so extreme, it's so satirical, it'll go on to tell us that not only did all of the people, rich and poor, people from every walk of life, not only did all of the people repent and tear their clothes and turn to God, but it says that even the cows repented. It tells us that the livestock repented and found salvation in God. The entire city was saved. So, like, great news, right? This all seems like really good news. A corrupt people have been saved. We haven't even gotten to the real problem yet. So let me read you from the last chapter. This is from chapter four. And most of our children's Bibles actually leave this chapter out completely. Um, which is sad because it's the most important chapter. Uh, So Jonah sees uh, the repentance of Nineveh and he says this. 
But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And he lays himself down in the desert and waits and begs to die because God forgave his enemies. I knew you would forgive my enemies. That's why I went the other way. You see, for the past few months, we have been reminded in scripture that Israel's purpose was to be a light to the nations. And we have seen that the nations around them typically were horrible. But even so, Israel was gathered together so that they could become inwardly strong to be sent out to those nations. So they would be outwardly focused, so they could reveal, so they could be witnesses to the nations to God's mercy and compassion. That was their job. Before Christ invited us to come and follow him, God invited Israel to be his people. And in this satire, Jonah, a historical figure, he embodies the people of God. And as the people of Israel read this satirical tale of a wayward prophet, as they read it, they were punched in the gut because it revealed a truth about them. The people were satisfied simply to gather to be the people of God without being on the mission of God. And that is just not how it works. You see, I think this story reveals a difficult truth that we have to wrestle with even today. Now, to put it really simply, our view of what life is, the meaning of life, the purpose of all this, it is often in direct competition with God's. We are beings made in the image of God and we were made for the purposes of God, for the mission of God. The one who made us knows why he made us and he knows how this life is to best be lived. We have just convinced ourselves that our way is right and we are in rebellion because we have a competing view of what life is all about. And so day after day, we live in obedience to this vision of human life that's been taught to us. And it's not only been taught to us by our families, it's been taught to us by our culture. And it's been ingrained in us our entire lives. So we live each day in the world in a way that makes the most sense to us given our particular circumstances. And I actually don't say that in judgment of that. It makes sense if you don't know otherwise. We're doing the best we can just to make it, day after day. But what if there's more? What if there's more to this life than just waiting to die? What if there's more to this life than just trying to make it day after day? You see, Jonah was invited into something that was more beautiful and more consequential than he could have ever done on his own. But his hate his disdain for his enemies kept him from it. He was happy to keep the mercy and the grace of God for himself and for those who were like him. His mission 
blinded him to the fact that God was calling him in to true life, a being made in the image of God who has been called into the mission of God. So it's actually a pretty clear choice that we're being asked to make. It's a pretty simple decision. Live in obedience to the God who created us and is now in the process of redeeming and restoring all things to himself or trust in the passing and broken things of this world. Try to keep up and trust in a culture that's constantly changing. Give everything you have to a world that will be radically different in a generation who won't have the same beliefs, who won't have the same values, who's just grasping for straws at how we're supposed to make it day by day. It's a simple choice. Just keep chasing after the best we can do here to make it day by day until we die or long for real life, for kingdom life, even here and now. You see, I think one of the problems is this word obedience. To us, obedience to Jesus sounds like we're being asked to give up our freedom. And if we believe that, that makes us hesitant to go make disciples because we don't want to sound like we are being coercive. We don't want to sound like we're asking people to give up their freedom. But step back and think of what we are asked to obey. Jesus said, teach them to obey everything that I taught. What did Jesus teach? Don't worry. Man, that is good news for a world that's anxious and exhausted Be reconciled to one another. (laughs) Uh, I let myself watch way too much news this week. We had senators and representatives in a room together who swore an oath on a Bible who claimed to be in church on Sunday mornings to follow God. Imagine how the last week in our government would have gone if it would have been a group of people who would have lived the words of Jesus, who would have been obedient to the words of Jesus and not just claimed them. How different would a conversation about impeachment have gone if the people of Jesus acted like the people of Jesus? He says, love your enemies. Don't retaliate against evil. Pray fast, give to the poor, help those who can't help themselves, but don't do it in a way that draws attention to yourself. And above all else, love God and love each other. We are being called to a way of life. We are being asked to be obedient to a way of life that is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Come on. What more is there? These things are the very antidote to everything that's wrong with this life. The news that we have to share, the news that we are sent with, y'all, it is good news. It is good news, not just for eternal life. It is good news for this one. Obedience to Christ is not sacrificing our freedom. It's the way to discover what freedom actually is. Jonah was blind, and so are we. The Clara and Tommy story was perfect today because we are blind men and women who are walking through life. Now, that might seem to you like I'm using a metaphor, but I'm not. I mean that literally, and I can prove it to you. Do you have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow? 
do you have any idea what's going to happen tonight? If you do, you need to go place a bet on whichever team is going to But I don't think you do. Do you have any idea of what's going to happen five minutes from now? Do you have any idea what's going to happen five seconds from now? No, we have no idea. Now, if you knew what was going to happen tomorrow, if you knew what would happen tonight, five minutes from now, five seconds from now, would it affect the decisions you make? Would you live differently right now if you knew what was going to happen tomorrow? Absolutely we would. Absolutely we would. So what if there was someone who could see the whole picture? What if there was someone who's not bound to time and space the way we are? What if there's someone who could see what's coming? What if there's someone who can see where we're headed? And what if that someone left us a guide? Some stories, some instructions that will help guide blind people toward a light that we can't even see yet. And what if when that blindfold is lifted just a little bit and you begin to catch a glimpse of that light, what if you had the opportunity to then help guide others, to bring others along, to save other people from just walking off the cliff because they don't even know where they're taking their next step and bring them into a forever home that's filled not with the passing fads and the pressures of this world, but is filled with joy and love. What if you had that chance? What if... We are called to go and to make disciples and it is not ours to determine who is worthy to be made into a disciple. It's not ours to determine who's worthy of God's grace and mercy. It's not ours to decide whether someone is loved by God based on whether they're loved by us. It's not ours to decide whether God loves someone, whether they're our friend or enemy, whether they think like us or look like us or live like us. Our job is to obey and to go to whoever it is that God has sent us to. It's not ours to decide if we go. Remember, there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. So as followers of Jesus, where do we go? We go everywhere. And I would add, yes, even there. And even there doesn't just mean this horrible ancient city. It doesn't mean a third world country or a place that you think you would never visit. Even there means the place that you are least likely to share your faith. Work with your neighbors, at school, in your home. We are sent everywhere always, even there. And to who are we sent? To everyone. And I would add, yes, even them. Friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, randoms, even our enemies. We are sent to everyone everywhere with the good news of Jesus and the directive that we are to be disciples who go and make disciples who make disciples. The people who are willing to take a chance, who will take a risk to guide other people toward that obedient, real life that Jesus has given us. The question that we're left with, the same question each and every week, will we trust him? And will we obey? You see, Jesus is inviting us to come and follow him. And for those who accept that invitation, now you get to be a part of his mission. You get to be a part of what he's doing. You get to own the command. The commissioning is over you. Go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey just as you have been taught to obey. And then he tells us, trust me, because I'm with you always. Always.
Y'all, we get to be a people made in the image of God, called to live out the mission of God. Show me anything this world can offer. How could it possibly be more beautiful than that? Let's pray. Father, just help us to see the beauty in your story. Um, Help us to get over whatever history we might have with the church. I've got my baggage with the church. Help us all to get over that. Help us to get past our fears of obedience because we're just used to obeying each other and that never really works. Help us to learn that we can trust you. That you do see what we can't, that you know what's ahead of us. And if we would just listen and follow your voice, if we would just jump over the stream, you're going to make sure that we land on solid ground. But God, we're scared. So give us courage. Help us to trust in you and help us hear and live out the call, the command to go, to love others and help them to love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website. You can also follow us on Facebook and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.